Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's getting towards mid-September 2020. And it seems as in one way or the other, the lights have gone out in America. <laughs> uh, literally, I'm speaking in Berkeley where day is night. And in political terms, day seems to be night too. The cities continue to simmer with violence, police response, rioters both on the left and the right. Uh, most mainstream commentators, of course, have been very critical of this violence. But there are some, particularly on the left, who are fitting it into a more um, sympathetic context. Uh, Vicky Osterweil is a Philadelphia-based thinker, writer, journalist, and she has a very, very provocative, controversial new book out, In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action. Uh, Vicky, defend looting. <laughs> well, if it was really easy, it would, uh, I wouldn't have had to write a book about it. But, um, but what, I'm, what I'm arguing in the book, basically, is that, um, is that when, when people loot, particularly in response to um, police violence or um, moments of, of police oppression, um, in, in riots that are that are started in response to to police murder, um, they're getting straight to the heart of the relations that produced that police violence in the first place, which are namely property, uh, white supremacy, and the history of policing um, as it evolves out of the uh, colonial slave patrols. Why do you think your book has aroused so much controversy, both interestingly on the left and the right? Uh, the uh, the criticism from the right is expected, of course, but there are a yeah. number of people on the left who have been, uh, if anything, even more critical of your work, of your thesis. Yeah, um, a lot of people are very, um, very, very upset if you, if you um, suggest that maybe private property as a system itself is part of the problem. Um, I think that that's ultimately a lot, what a lot of the outrage comes down to, is that people really... Um, really don't want to admit the extent to which all of our systems are really implicated in the current white supremacist order, that the police don't just arbitrarily act violently, but that they act with arbitrary violence based on a historical goal of the organization um, and of the, and of the, the, the state, um, which is, as, as I say in the book and argue in the book, historically, the oppression of black and the dispossession of indigenous people. Um, and I think a lot of people who are willing to go as far as saying, clearly, this racism is bad that we're seeing on the streets, um, but aren't willing to say, this racism is embedded deeply, this anti-blackness anti is embedded deeply within all of our systems. So when you defend looting, which, you know, when I'm doing it, this book is really a history book. You know, people are very outraged. It's really a book of history. And I'm just tracing the emergence and the continual reappearance of looting um, and similar tactics in liberatory struggles. Um, struggles that I think the people who are upset about my book um, want to identify with historically, but they want to disavow 
the looters and the rioters who participated in and created that those movements. Um, so what I'm arguing for is really just for us to to look with unsparing honesty um, and and a real desire for change at the history of liberation movement, and to not um, begin from the principle that uh, you know looting is obviously everyone you know hates looting and rioting and it's terrible, but that's that's sort of the presumption from which all of this all this discourse starts. And I, I just want to say, like, no, like, looting and rioting happen because they are effective. Uh, do you fit your thinking into an anarchist tradition? When I listen to you, I think of Proudhon and the the European tradition of anarchism and his thesis of of property as being theft. Mm-hmm. Um, is is your work coming out of a, a long tradition of anarchist thinking and anarchist writing? Um, so it is very much, um, I think it is very much in the anarchist tradition um, to the extent that I um, don't believe that there's any uh, path to liberation through the state. I don't think that we have to capture it. And, um, and I think that the historical attempts to do so have been, um, have been failures. Um, some of them, some of them noble failures, some of them horrible failures, but all of them, all of them failures. Um, uh, and I think, um, I think, but, but the tradition that the book is actually theorizing out of more directly rather than the sort of European anarchist tradition um, is the black radical tradition um, predominantly out of the US. So the people who I really um, focus on and, and sort of think with and through in the book are, um, People like Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, um, Asada Shakur, and then more recently thinkers like Sylvia Winter, um, Christina Sharp, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. That's not more recent, but Du Bois is very, very important uh, to the thesis of the book. Um, I think my encounter with his book, Black Reconstruction, about a decade ago, <clears throat> excuse me, about a decade ago, completely, um, completely transformed the way I understood American history and, and led to... Uh, the understanding that allowed for the production of the the first essay in 2014 during the Ferguson uprising on which the book was ultimately based. Um, Uh, Do you think that um, the history of race and racial oppression in America makes it exceptional in terms of your thesis? Uh, Or Hmm. um, are there traditions of racism in Europe and, and elsewhere in the world which fit it in to, to, to the American model? Or is there something simply exceptional? And it's interesting if you take the exceptional route, because of course, uh, on the right, there's also a tradition of, of thinking America as an exceptional place. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think America is um, particularly blatant and visible. Um, and so it is exceptional in terms of its, its utility as a historian to be able to look at um, because of the, 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 the very... Um, the way in which race relations here are, are very clear, um, very central, and the way that there is a, a long history of black radical revolt in this country. Um, I do not think that America is exceptional in being racist. Um, I think European countries, um, and I encountered this, I lived in the UK for a while, and, and I would hear people say, you know, oh, well, that's very good for the US, but we don't have a race problem here. Um, you know, it's a very common position on the European left, I hope less common uh, every day. Um, but I think that, that these structures, these racial structures, and here um, the work of Cedric Robinson is very important, uh, the book Black Marxism. Um, he talks about the way in which um, even, even before colonialism in mercantilist Europe, and sorry for getting a little academic and historical here, but it's the basis of the argument, um, 
there were proto-racial ways of organizing labor. So for example, Scots were seen as more reliable than Irish and Welsh mm. people were, you know, were, were, you know, there were all these different, and that was across Europe. It wasn't just in the UK. Um, you know, Slavs were the hardest working and the most exploitable. Um, so that there were already in early, in early modern Europe, there are already sort of what we would describe as sort of racial, racial-ish um, ideas developing. Um, and then those then get translated through the, the settler colonial movement on the ground into anti-blackness and white supremacy. So it develops out of a, so, so it is, I think, racial thinking, um, which is different from a pure sort of tribal thinking or some sort of general communalism. I think like racial, is, racial thinking in particular is a historically capitalist and European um, product of the last 500 years. Um, but America is only exceptional to the degree that it is a particularly large, powerful um, settler colony that has had a lot of internal strife um, and a lot of uh, external power as an empire. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think that this analysis, um, you know, I mean, a big part of what, what gave me this analysis was in the UK riots of 2011, I don't know if you remember those, there was a, there were over Mark Duggan, the police killing of man Mark Duggan. There was a tremendous amount of um, looting and burning and the UK left, like even a lot of the radical left just disavowed it completely. Said like this, we have nothing to do with this. And um, you know, this has, this has nothing to do with revolution and with freedom, you know, like all this stuff. And so having to respond to that was one of the first moments where I really started to think through the ways this works. So it's definitely not just American thing. Yeah, and I, and I think it goes back to this cleavage on the left that began in the 19th century between anarchists and, 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 and Marxists. I mean, Marx, of course, in the manifesto, was deeply critical of, of anarchism. Mm. Is your hostility or mistrust in the state, is that something that could ever change? I mean, if, if, if the state, so to speak, changed hands, or are, by definition, you simply suspicious of the state as a series of institutions that could make the world a better place and, and do away with the conditions that produce these riots? <laughs> I would love to be wrong. Um, I, would love, I would love for the, to just take an election for everything to change. That would be very relaxing. <laughs> that would be very restful if that was possible. Um, I think that would be, uh, I understand why that appeals to so many people. It feels, it feels like a much more um, graspable solution to the problems we face. I don't believe it's true. I, I do, I am suspicious of the possibility of the state being able to solve the problems. I do think that one of the lessons of the 20th century revolutionary movements, um, which there were a tremendous number of experiments, um, all of which went through the state in different ways, um, I think I think there is some unified analysis that you can perform that demonstrates the way in which um, bureaucracies reformed the state in all these different places, you know, from, from Cuba to Vietnam to China to Russia to the USSR um, was a catastrophic, catastrophic for the possibility of truly revolutionizing those societies. Um, that's not really in the book so much, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I think, I think that's, that's, that's my, 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 Instinctual feeling is that we cannot ever achieve freedom through just changing who's in the hands of the state. The way the state is organized is to protect property, um, the nation, uh, whiteness, ultimately, um, and patriarchy. Um, but, you know, if I was wrong, I, I wouldn't be upset. But the only way I could be wrong would be to be proven wrong. And that would mean the world getting a lot better, um, which is what I want, ultimately. 
I don't know how you came up with the, the title of the book. Uh, it's, it's a good title and I'm sure it's selling very well. And it's getting a lot of press. <laughs> Could the book have also been called In Defense of Violence? Because there's a, a, fanon ele a fanonist element, I think, to your work, to the book and to your thinking. Were you influenced by Franz Fanon and his, his cult of violence? <laughs> I, I, I don't think Franz Fanon had a cult of violence. Um, I've read Fanon. And I don't um, mean that necessarily critically either for you sure, or sure. for Fanon. No, no, I appreciate it. Um, I, I've, I read, I've, read, um, uh, I've read Fanon's work, but it's, it, didn't, it wasn't actually very crucial for this book. Um, in the end, I, I didn't end up revisiting him. Um, just, I mean, as much because there was a limited amount of time and research I could do when I was you know, holding down other day jobs and trying to write this book. Um, but I think in defense of violence is not actually what the book is arguing. Um, I think that, um, I think you could call the book against nonviolence might, might be one title right. for one angle that the book is working on. Um, but I think that there is a, the distinction between nonviolence and violence um, is a lot like the, the distinction between pro-life and pro-choice. Once you framed it that way, you've already lost the fight, you know? Um, like who would want to, who wouldn't want to be pro-life, right? But when that means actually women suffering with babies they don't want, suddenly it's a different question. So I think the nonviolence violence dichotomy, which, you know, under that framework, violence includes both the murder of Breonna Taylor in her home and the smashing of a window in response to her murder. If violence includes both those things, it can't be a concept that, that truly can guide me morally. You know, then I think ultimately, like we either have to define violence very more narrow, much more narrowly, or, um, and I don't think that's actually very helpful. I think it can be helpful to think about violence as a very broad topic. I actually think that's a better use of the word. Um, or we have to not try and think about our goals as violent versus nonviolent. That I think that that turn, which takes place in the, largely in the 60s towards judging a movement by its nonviolence, um, is precisely the problem that I'm trying to grapple with in the book. So it's not in defense of violence, but it's certainly, um, I certainly am hoping that people take a different view of nonviolence after reading the book. Perhaps that could be the title of your next book, In Defense <laughs> of Violence. Um, you, you, races, of course, and the, the struggle of African-Americans is central to your thesis and the book. Um, but of course, there is a, a very strong tradition of nonviolence within the African-American mm -hmm. community, particularly associated with Martin Luther King. What's been the response of the African-American political community, particularly the, 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 the kind of the, the MLK camp to your thesis? Um, honestly, uh, you know, the book has only really been out for um, a week and a half, and mostly all I've heard is loud denunciation. Um, what do you think a lot of different... <laughs> MLK would think of the book and of the thesis? You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say. Um, I mean, I certainly talk about, um, I talk about him very directly, about mistakes that he made, that I think he made, and ways in which he acted. I think, um, you know, following Malcolm X's critique right. and the critiques of... Um, the critiques of Ella Baker and Dorothy Height and um, Polly Murray, um, ways in which he acted sort of misogynistically by, by silencing black women at the March on Washington. So I critiqued a lot of these things. I also think his experience in the, in the movement, particularly when he goes north um, and tries to organize in Chicago, um, led him to increasingly um, move away from the strict nonviolence that he that he preached in his at his most famous moments, and when he died, he was wildly unpopular among white among white people in America. I mean, just one of the least popular figures in America at the time. Um, 
partially because of his turn towards a more radical critique, partially because he, they never really liked him even when he was nonviolent either. Um, so I think, you know, the, those questions are, um, it's unknowable what, what, where he would be and what, what he would be like. Do now. you think that the, the state, and I know it's, it's hard to generalize about all African-Americans in America, but do you think that the state of the African-American community is worse today in 2020 than it was in the 1960s or indeed in the 1950s before the civil rights movement? You know, that's a very um, complicated and difficult question. So, you know, I think one of the things that's really important about the work of people like Christina Sharp um, and Sadia Hartman um, is to demonstrate the ways in which there has been a continuity um, of, of um, slave-like oppression and, and forms of discrimination across all these time periods. Um, Angela Davis is good on this when she talks about our prisons obsolete. The, the existence of the prison industrial complex to me isn't that different from the existence of Jim Crow, which isn't ultimately that different from the immediate post-reconstruction collapse of, of um, the possibilities of a different America. So I think, you know, the, there are in many ways, um, you know, economically in the 60s, in the 70s, excuse me, um, <clears throat> the, 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 the statistics um, on black people in America was that they had unemployment levels at, at the Great Depression, were there still, um, their median wealth hasn't gone up, um, and all working people in America are worse off now than they were in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, to, to answer that question in a, in a, some people are doing better, most people are doing the same, some people are doing worse. I think prisons are a real horrifying atrocity. Um, I think the police lynching that's in the street now is really, really terrible, and it is on par with the height of the lynching movement in the 1890s. Um, uh, in America. So um, things change. Um, the form of the oppression changes, but, but the, the, and, and obviously there has been great strides made by the movement. The movement has pushed back many, many forms of, of legal racism have been destroyed in the, in the wake of the movement to be replaced by sort of colorblind forms of racism, like, like, you know, criminal minimum sentencing, for example, which technically is not racist, but we know operates, you know, anti, in an anti-black way. So it's, it's, there's no easy answer to that question. There were no easy answers, I think, to any of these questions. <laughs> it makes it so interesting, Vicky. Uh, I've had a number of African-American guests uh, on the show basically taking your position. Do you think one of the reasons, in, in a relatively uncontroversial sense, actually, do you think one of the reasons why your work and your person has aroused so much controversy since the book came out is because you're white and not black? Um, I think, you know, it allows people to, um, people, it allows liberals who would otherwise be um, more wary of appearing racist to go full frontal. I think, um, I think in some ways it allows them um, to attack fully, but it also, you know, also, of course, like I am also more materially protected from those attacks. Like those attacks are less relevant and, and, and dangerous to me than they would be to, to, um, to a black woman who had written the same thing. So um, I think there is some extent there is that that does play into some of the ways in which the vitriol plays out, I think. Um, but I also think that um, a lot of people and this is sort of meta, you know, as a meta level in which this is operating. Um, I think because I'm white, it allows them to actually express an anti-black opinion that they have 
more comfortably. Um, and that ultimately it's really not about me. This has nothing, the controversy really has nothing to do with me, honestly. Like it's about like the idea that anyone would stand up and support this movement, which has been all over the country. It's massively popular. So every, lots of people are supporting it. But the idea that sort of in the, in the realm of letters, someone would deign to take it seriously this way, I think um, is outrageous. And that, and, and that is going to, to make people very, very angry no matter what. But I think, you know, my, my whiteness maybe makes them feel a little more comfortable attacking in some ways. Um, but it also uh, makes me more likely to benefit from the book than, than a black person would. So ultimately, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all a mess as ever. <laughs> wow, it's an interesting mess, Vicky. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the long-term solution here? There seems to be, in your thinking and in your work, a kind of embrace of the the, the carnivalesque quality of, of rioting, of, of looting. Is this the solution, this sort of ongoing uh, civil unrest? Because if you don't trust the state, how can this world actually be made better? Yeah. Um, so basically, um, the answer to that is abolition. Um, Abolition, abolition of what? Of police? Of the police, um, which ultimately means the abolition of whiteness and, in my opinion, of the state as well. Um, and well what does that mean? Excuse the, the no. rather uh, uh, naive question, but what, what does that mean, the abolition of whiteness? So um, the argument that has been made um, for many years, going back to Du Bois at this point, basically, but, but even further back, is that um, whiteness isn't actually... Um, an inherited skin trade. It doesn't, it doesn't mean Caucasian, right? If you look at the work of Ted Allen, how the Irish became white. In the 19th century, Irish people weren't white, Jews weren't white, Czechs, Germans, most Catholics weren't white. Um, whiteness isn't just of European heritage. Um, what whiteness is, is it's a property that people have that gives them social power over non-white people. Okay. And it's, it's why the ranks of whiteness can expand and, and, and contract. So it's a um, form as, of class, essentially. Yeah, it's a form of property, I would say. Yeah, I think Cheryl Harris, Cheryl Harris names it as property. So it is, it is a class-like structure. In a, um, in a Marxist sense, class. Yeah, it's a, it is, you know, uh, Stuart Hall says it's the modality through which class is lived. Um, I think it's, it's not as, sim it's, it's different from a, from a class because it, it, people in a, in a subordinate class position can have a, can be white. So it's, it's not cleanly class, but it's, but it isn't, it is more similar than I think we tend to think about it. So we get so just so to go back to this long-term solution. Sure. We, yeah. We get away with whiteness slash social caste by getting rid of the police and the law. Is is that the solution? Um, I mean, I don't think it's just getting rid of the police and the law exactly. Like I think like like it's about a total transformation of our social relations, um, which means that we no longer you know, in the Marxist sense, like also a revolution in that we, we no longer um, have to be exploited for our labor in order to get the things that we need. Um, you know, I think California right now is a really good example, right? Which is that for thousands and thousands of years, indigenous uh, land keepers managed fires and they, kept the, and they kept California vibrant. And in a century of colonial management of, of California, we've turned it into an apocalypse, um, you know, as is right outside your window. So I think like there are, I don't know the exact solutions and I would, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't really trust anyone who has exact blueprints or solutions. Um, but I do think that other ways of living otherwise have been pointed to 
throughout the history of indigenous and African societies, and also in the history of revolt and rebellion. And that the, 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 the freedom exper experience in the riot doesn't mean that the riot itself is the revolution or is the new society, but it points towards some of the feelings and relations that we might have. And it opens a space in which we can start to imagine what that looks like and then start pushing towards it. So the looting itself is not the revolution. Um, rioting itself is not the revolution, but it, it shows people that things could be different. And then they start imagining and thinking of way, otherwise ways of living. This is, of course, a really important conversation. Uh, 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 Vicky Osterweil has broken through. It's very hard. So many books coming out in, in this weird time. <laughs> yeah. But you've broken through within, uh, with your new book, In Defense of Looting. Uh, I think an essential read for anyone concerned about the future of America. Uh, Vicky, you're lucky to be in Philadelphia, not in California. In <laughs> uh, what else, in addition to In Defense of Looting, should people be reading in these weird times? <laughs> um, I'm reading a really beautiful book right now, um, a bit academic called Sexual Hegemony by Chris Chitty, um, who actually passed away. He was a UC Davis grad student. Um, he did, passed away a few years ago. His work has been saved. It's a beautiful history of, um, of queerness and sodomy and the ways that they get controlled in emerging capitalism. Um, I'm also reading a book uh, similar to mine um, called, um, oh, wow, now I'm going to blank on it. It's Kelly Carter Jackson's uh, uh, wow, okay. Um, Force and Liberty? Anyway, Kelly Carter Jackson's most recent book about abolitionists is very, very beautiful and talks about the ways in which we misunderstand the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist struggle. Um, so, so I'm reading that right now too. Um, and those two books are, I'm, I'm happy to give a big shout out to you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.